I think a lot of people are being turned off by mainstream news. How corporate it's become, how predictable it is, and how elitist it is as well. These are people who are in DC and New York and live in their bubble and have no idea what it's like for, rest, for the rest of the populations. They are partisan, but they pretend that they're not. Like, no one is under any, like, misunderstanding that Daily Wire is a conservative outlet. But when you turn on CNN, we're straight news. But are you? Is that really true? <laughs>
what I started doing was seeking out like free speech forums and then basically just trying to figure out, am I the only one that feels this way? Am I going crazy? And to hear from other people like, no, you're not crazy. Um, we feel this way too. And I actually got encouragement from them to write more uh, because of how I explained everything that I, I was saying. Um, and and so from there, I was like, you know what, maybe they're onto something. So it was, it was kind of like all of those things. 2020 is a very emotional time for a lot of people. And it was confusing. And I think it was like all those things kind of put together. And then one day I said, you know what, I'm going to write a book. And uh, I sat down basically five days a week. I think there were two weeks that I didn't write anything. Um, it was like five days a week for about an hour to hour and a half. I just wrote. And uh, it took me about eight months to completion. I self-published it. <clears throat> and then from there, all I was really trying to do was just market the book. I had zero expectations. I didn't know if anybody was going to buy it, if anybody was going to like it. And I was okay with that. Um, it was more so for me to put it out there. You know, I felt good putting it out there. And, and so because I had such low expectations, everything else has been like a complete blessing that, you know, people tell me not just that they like the book, but like uh, one particular person in mind said that book changed their life. And that's like a, it's hard to fathom that, but I understand what he means. Um, you know, the way I wrote it was very much so in a good faith way. And even if you didn't necessarily agree with me, you understood where I was coming from. And so it makes you kind of question some things, right? It doesn't force you to question, but just hearing hearing me out um, makes you kind of think about some things in, in a little bit of a different way. Um, but, you know, that that's something that I still think about when you said that. And so many other people told me how much it impacted their lives by reading this book, um, whether it's the aspects of victimhood, whether it's the aspects of fatherlessness, um, you know, there there's so much to it, like the even though it's called black victim and black victor, that's just a case study. Like you can swap up black and put just about anything else in there. There are some things that are specific to black in the book, but there are a lot of things that aren't. Um, and you can, it is very relatable because of that. Yeah, when I read your stuff, um, obviously there's some stuff where you're talking about culturally that relates to the black American experience for sure. But um, maybe for those that haven't, written or paid attention to the issue but the way you describe the problems that are facing so many people that's true of so many americans i would say perhaps even the majority of, of middle class or lower class americans of any color there's a huge amount of fatherlessness and uh, broken families and the white communities as well as the black and i never get the sense when i'm reading you that this only applies to them your your writing is very welcoming and it's very clear and it, it's a heartbreaking issue i one of the things i really that stood out i think among the story what i've read is you talk about how growing up without having a father around and having all those effects affected you, even when you later became a father yourself and you you kind of unwittingly, some of this stuff carried on, even though you didn't mean to. And just speaking for myself, I grew up in a single parent household. I, I can't relate to that completely. It's like these weird, these weird ticks or something that they carried on with you. You don't mean for it to happen, but it just it just sticks to you. And I just think your writing on this topic is so excellent. Thank you. 
and and that's that's exactly it you know i try to talk about how like what i i think there's there's a difference between talking about a problem and complaining about it and so when i talk about like my struggles it's not me complaining it's me talking about it because i overcame it and so my my goal is to say i went through this i'm no longer going through that and so if i can go if i can overcome that obstacle so can you so when i talk about my anxiety that i used to have my depression um you know my feeling of worthlessness my struggles with women like all these different things these are things that i was able to overcome it took me time um and it took a belief that i was able to do so but i talk about it not to complain but to to say like you know it's relatable because a lot of people are going through it they just don't talk about it publicly um and i kind of feel like if you talk about it it doesn't harm you anymore right it can't be used against you you know it's like um it's kind of like when someone has a scandal the reason there's a scandal is because they were trying to hide it but when they address it it's not really that big of a scandal right so you can't weaponize something uh, most of the time. You can't weaponize something that you embrace and you talk about openly. It's no longer a weapon against you because you're not scared of it. You know, you're not fearful of other people finding out about it. You're talking about it. So, you know, I think that's one of the one of my approaches is to be very open about very specific things. Even though I'm 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 kind of a private person. Um, so I, I talk about very particular things because I'm personally okay with talking about it because it doesn't bother me to talk about it because I've already worked through all of that stuff. But I'm also private. I don't overshare on many things. So I try to find that balance between the two. I, uh, I'm an introvert by nature, but I way overshare. And I, <laughs> I, you, I could blame that on fatherlessness, but that's probably not true. I think I would be like that parent or no parent. That's just kind of who I am. It's interesting to me. It's so weird because it's like, this is obviously like a huge topic that affects us. I just think of the the internet today, you know, how much of the animosity we feel comes from parent people who came from homes where they didn't have better behavior modeled, whether you're talking about all the ladies that are on OnlyFans, all the, all the weebs stuck on 4chan, you know, how much of the stuff that happens with the alt-right. There's so many things, you know, even even terrible, horrible things like mass shooters, it's like there you can see that there is damage being done to so many people. But for whatever reason, especially when you're talking about young men, talking about fatherlessness, I'm not gonna say it's taboo, but it, it's very unpopular. Uh, it's it's hard on both sides of the aisle uh, in different ways to talk about. I I never quite understood why that was because like for me, I could recognize that's a very big issue in my life, but for some reason, it's like no one wants to hear that message, but maybe that's because we're all guilty. So like no one wants no one <laughs> wants to hear how they're actually part of the problem. But what what are your thoughts of that? Well, uh, the reason why talking about fatherlessness is taboo is because it gets interpreted as it's the woman's fault that the father isn't there, or uh, somehow it's the woman's fault for not raising the child properly, even though the father wasn't there. Um, and I think that's that's kind of the the hesitation to talk about it um, because we don't want to appear like we're insulting our mothers. Um, but at the same time, we have to be honest about the choices that some of our mothers make. Um, and, and typically when I talk about single mothers, I'm not talking about divorcees. 
I'm talking about uh, children who were made out of wedlock, mother never married the father, and so on and so on. Um, I usually am not referring to divorcees and um, and uh, widows, um, but that's just me. Some people just kind of throw them all in there. Um, although I do think that divorce is a big problem, um, my my big thing is at least they tried. You know, at the very least, they tried to have some sort of uh, sustainable sustainable relationship. Um, but like you know, I've talked about my situation. My father was married. He was always married to somebody else, though. Um, we were the other kids. We were the other family. And she had two kids by him. Um, there was no possibility that my father was ever going to leave his wife to be with my mother. Doesn't seem like he had any interest uh, in doing so. And so, you know, these were choices that my mother made. You know, when I was born, my mother was 24 and my father was 50. Right. So, you know, there's a huge age difference. And I, and I understand my mother's situation as well, um, you know, because she didn't have the best of situation. I usually don't, I don't talk about her, her upbringing because that's her story. But it's um, like I, I understand the circumstance that led to it. But at the same time, she was an adult when both myself and my sister were born. And so these were the choices that she made. She always knew he was a married man and that didn't bother her. Um, and this is her choices led for, for, um, my life to be this particular way and my sister's life to be in this particular way. And we were negatively impacted by it. Um, you know, does she regret it? I don't know. Um, but you know, I think it's, I think honesty with love, is what's needed rather than like fear of offending but never getting to the truth yeah and i i completely understand the desire i you know with my own parents i don't want to throw anyone under the bus i'm not you know i don't want to embarrass you know when I, even when i talk about this issue or uh mention on social media there's still you know a little bit, little bit of concerns like you don't want to hurt these people that you love and that sacrifice so much you know to make you being here even possible but on the other hand you know the the bad choices they have made; those last, and, and unfortunately, so often with uh, domestic abuse, divorce situations, it's the children that suffer. And, and it's hard, you know, it's really hard to like to to to, to cross that gap, to, you know, to thread that needle. So you you make a good point there. But on the other hand, it's like this is such a big issue for so many people. Um, I honestly, I wonder how much of our culture war stuff is rooted in that. We do have bigger problems going on, but we want, don't want to deal with those. So instead, we're going to all complain about Star Wars or uh, Taylor Swift this week. <laughs> well, actually, so I'll tell you this. I have a book that I'm I'm supposed to be working on. Um, but the primary objective of it is to talk about fatherlessness. Um, I'm trying to do an apolitical fatherlessness book. Um and how it impacts our society. And you can name every major issue that's happening, um, major thing that we talk about. You can range it from homelessness, drug addiction, uh, relationship issues. Um, and I can show you a very easy link to family dysfunction and fatherlessness. Um, 
you know, so even when we talk about relationships, part of the reason why feminism works for certain demographics of women is that the first man that they're supposed to be in love with is their father, and that first man disappointed them. So how is any man going to do anything better than him? You know, it, it really comes down to that. You have an ideology that says all men are bad, all men are disappointing, um, and, and leans on negativity of men. And so then it's very easy to look at their father. My father ain't shit. Hey, you know what? Maybe my father is an example of what men are really like. And they're always ready for a man to disappoint them, a man to hurt them emotionally, a man to, dis you know, to, to let them down some way. On the flip side, I think a lot of the manosphere situation is similar. I think there are a lot of young men who grew up in single-parent homes, who grew up with their mothers, and they were neglected in some way by their mother. Um, they weren't shown certain things because their mother isn't supposed to be the one to show them that. Um, they were treated differently. They didn't have a male figure to show them how to do these particular things. And I completely understand that. Much of the manosphere, when I started following it, it made sense to me what was going on. Not the sensational stuff, right? But some of the advice that they were giving and the perspectives they were giving actually wasn't that bad. And I started implementing it in my life. And actually, uh, when my, um, my wife and I, when we were dating, we would watch some of the content and we would talk about it. And we engage in conversation surrounding it. And my life started improving actually because of some of the content uh, within the manosphere. And now it's, it's become ridiculous and it's just all entertainment. But there, there was a point in time when it was like, it was good, solid advice. And I realized that some of that advice would be advice you would get from your father. And, and that's why it really resonates with a lot of men is because they never got that advice from their fathers. They never got that advice from any man. I grew up, I, I wasn't around men at all. I know people who uh, didn't have their father around, but they had an uncle or they had a grandfather. They had some sort of male figure that gave them some sort of direction. I had none. And so figuring out what it was to be a man was just, it was a very difficult thing for me to accomplish. And it took me a long time, but you know, the manuscript content actually helped me in some ways. Um, but I'm also, I think I'm really good at saying that's entertainment this is useful, you know, and I do that all the time. Yeah, a lot of people aren't very good with parasocial relationships, um, <laughs> especially these days. But no, yeah. you 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 are right. I think if you think kind of like basic Jordan Peterson level kind of advice, like you know, make your bed, tie your shoes, you know, be 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 on time, be orderly, you know, meet your bills when you get them, like very basic life advice. But it's sad. It, people don't like to talk about, but it's sad, but very basic life advice is very important. And for many people, it's very hard. It's hard yeah. for them to get that in their lives. And while it seems like, well, bad, that's that's so obvious. Well, of course, why didn't they hear that? But that, that often is the problem. <laughs> it's like <laughs> they didn't hear the basics. They really don't understand that. No, you shouldn't. You know, you're 19. Why are you putting $20,000 on a credit card? That's stupid. Don't do that. Right. But they don't have that. They don't have someone to help provide the guidance and discipline. You know, it's like. How do you find your first job? What's the difference between a job and a career? You know, when you're looking for your significant other, what are the kind of qualities you're looking for? Like so many things. That's so important. And it's, and moms are great. 
and they could do a lot, but you know, dads are great too, and they have an important role. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, Western society has tried to just kind of pull them out of the picture to, for many people, terrible, terrible results. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And, and as far as the advice goes, I'll tell you this, um, my son is now 18 and I remember when he was very small, you know, they were like, oh, I like the cute baby phase. For me, it was fine. You know, cute baby's phase is fine. But for me, I was always waiting for him to be old enough for, for me to give him the shortcuts, right? Because I never got that. And so like when people are like, oh, the teenage years, I was like, I'm looking forward to the teenage years, you know, where he has his first girlfriend, he has his first disappointment and we can talk about it. And when he's um, attempting to do something and he's feeling down about it, and I'm there to say, you got this. Like all the things I didn't get as a kid, I was now able to give him and and have him put it into practice and have him make mistakes and have him do better and, and set expectations for him and stay on him because I know he can do better. And so now like he's the most, he's even chiller than I am. Hey, he's a, he's a great responsible kid. He has a job, you know, he's trying to secure his future. He's trying to figure himself out. And he knows that he has me as emotional support and he can, he can talk to me about anything and I won't judge him and we'll just have a conversation. The only thing I ever told him is do not lie to me. And other than that, like if you, if you messed up, just talk, talk to me about it. We'll figure it out, but don't lie to me. And, and from there, we've had a really good relationship because of it. Do you think there's like a way for society to self-correct? I obviously perhaps the only way through this and maybe this is true for most issues, it's just at the individual level and for people to make better decisions. Uh, but is there a way to help society, society to correct? I mean, feminism, it does have a lot of positives, but a big negative was the decision that I need a man like I need a, like a fish needs a bicycle. <laughs> yeah. It was a terrible idea. It's, it's kind of a, it is kind of a funny a little quote, but uh, it, it's not, it's not good. Like half the population are male. Like you're just saying, oh, we don't, we don't need that half. That's, that's, it's not a good idea, but that's what they decided they were going to go with uh, our our good feminists <laughs> from the '60s, and this is kind of where it's left us, unfortunately. Do I think that society can self-correct? Yes, because I think people can change. Um, I think that there would have to be a multitude of things that would have to occur. Um, I'm one of those people that thinks that because it's true, you can find success out of failure. Um, so while a lot of people are afraid. That our our society is in the decline, and are afraid that our society is falling apart and dying. Like, I, and I get it. Sometimes you need that rock bottom to to come back from, and realize we went too far. We need to self correct. Um, I think sometimes, especially you know, with us being in the information age, a lot of uh, Gen Z are looking at their parents and saying, "I don't want to do that." Like my parents are crazy or, you know, look, <laughs> you know, they want, they, they're, they have a lot of information in front of them and, a, and access to a lot of different perspectives. Whereas when I was a kid, you had the encyclopedia, right? That was basically it. And the people you knew. And so now you can challenge ideas. You can challenge orthodoxy. You can, you can say like, yeah, my, my parents have a point, but like, are they full of shit about this other stuff? Like, 
you can, you are now able to self-correct if things aren't working in your direction. But I think what we need, we need a couple of things. We need a restoration in humility and we need Definitely. to bring back shame. I think social shame is a really big driving force in any society, right? There are certain things that are shameful and you do not do, and it is not tolerated. So like, um, if you do anything remotely pedophilic, that brings disgust to 99.9% .9 of the population, right? So that is a social shame that we still have that is good. There needs to be a social shame, um, maybe not as strong, you know, for pedophilia, but there needs to be a certain level of shame when it comes to certain activities. We used to have um, a certain social shame about teenage pregnancy. And it made people fearful of having sex too soon uh, before getting married and shaming their family. You don't see that anymore. You don't, you don't hear people saying, I'm going to shame my family. It's going to ruin our reputation as a family. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. I think it's very considerate to think about how this will make yourself and others look because of your own behavior. Um, it doesn't mean that all shame is good. It doesn't mean that all, you know, I'm not trying to romanticize the past, but I think that there is something there about a social stigma that is necessary to have because what ends up happening is we, we lose those things and then everybody looks to the government to somehow supplement it. Oh, we just need a law that allows this or restricts this. Yeah, but that's not how you fix social issues. That's not how you fix society, right? The laws are like the, the last measure, right? Well, how do we conduct ourselves as people? How do we conduct ourselves as men, women, parents, children? How do we conduct ourselves? And do we get to hold each other accountable? But it just seems like there's, there's less neighborhoods we're not close to our extended family. There's more separation. People move across the country, you know, in a split second. There's, you know, as soon as you're 18, you're supposed to be out of the house. There's a lot more um, disconnection and less likely to hold people accountable. You know, if you decided to leave your house at 18 and do something that your parents don't like, you're like, well, F you, uh, I'm not talking to you. And nobody would care like because it's your life you do whatever you want to do and that's that's the kind of society that we have you're now allowed to do that and there's no shame if you do that and people just say well you know they just kind of shrug their shoulders you know yeah no that that's interesting i think i think it's interesting that so much obviously this is more a point from from the left-wing point of view but that the the term they like to use is destigmatization, and it often feels like destigmatization is really they're saying you know take away the punishments, <laughs> take yes. away the negative consequences. <laughs> and I'm like to a point like yeah we should be rubbing people's faces in it. We you know obviously terrible things happen, a lot of things are outside of control. The other hand, some things definitely do need to have consequences, and we do need to have red lines. But like no, this is that's too far. You know that is obviously immorally unacceptable and is not good for people and pretending otherwise is going to, it's not going to help. You know, it's so many things I feel like, like we want to pretend it's, it's okay. It's like, oh, you know, what we're seeing in Canada right now, 
with yeah. um, how they've expanded uh, euthanasia with the disabled. It's horrific. And what they, the what language they use up there is this language. They say destigmatize it. Well, I think we should. I think people should feel ashamed if they push their twelve year old kid who's a paraplegic into committing suicide. That's really bad. That's bad. Don't do that. So, I, I, to your point, I do agree. There, th- th- we need to. It's hard to put the right words for it, but um, the, at least the terms we're using here: shame, stigma. You do need. You need some of that because I. It's like how else can you help? people understand, especially people who don't have a strong family network, who don't have people who are going to help role model positive behavior. But I mean, this is this is just me guessing. I mean, this is just me, you know, uh, shooting the wind. I have no idea how to fix any of these problems. I just know <laughs> it's a big problem. And I, I see it all the time. It makes me sad. I have a lot of friends all across the place. Um, and a lot of my friends, especially who might identify like they're all right. They're into like uh, 4chan, you know, some of that kind of gamer culture. Like the one, number of them that actually have a positive uh, male role model in their life. I mean, you could probably count on one hand. Like that, like like the number of, I'd be surprised if even 10% of the people who are frequenting places like 4chan who might be listening to someone, like I, uh, Nick Fuentes, like how many of them actually had a dad around? I would be, I would be willing to put money down that it's, I mean, it's got to be, you know, a quarter or less. I mean, that's how, that's how prolific I think this problem is, but it's like, that's just, you're not allowed to talk about it. And you, like you said, maybe it's because we don't want to hurt the moms, but it hurts people because it's like having a dad is really important. And I, me personally, I didn't really understand until I was becoming an adult and uh, you kind of feel like where something was missing. It was like, well, some people seem to have, they had this thing and you can kind of feel it out. You're like, oh, (laughs) That's where dad was supposed to be. And it, it hurts you. It hurts you. And it, it makes me sad. I had lost the opportunity. And I, 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 I just think like, look, humans are built a certain way. You know, geese made for life. Animals behave a certain way. People need old families. They need a mom and a dad. And pretending otherwise, as much as we would like it to be different in reality. Like it would be nice if, we, if you just slot at one parent and it's just as good as two. Unfortunately, that's not how humans are built. And we're only hurting ourselves pretending it it's some something else but yeah that's my little rant <laughs> no no i i completely agree with you um and actually i want to kind of go back because we were talking about feminism i think that it's not just feminism any any uh, ideology that's like this any ideology that believes in order to find success you must take away from something else to me is a failed ideology it's yeah, 100%. ultimately going to be detrimental so whether it's uh, red pill guys saying that we need to take away from women because they have too much power um, in order for men to succeed. Well, that's that's not actually true. You can find success otherwise. Um, you know, if you're asking for equality, if you're asking for fairness, that's one thing. But I think that when you start going into the language of we need to force, we need to take away, um, and then demonizing language about a particular demographic you know there are there are pro-black people that believe that white people have too much stuff and that we need to take away their stuff so we can have it or if they don't have stuff it's because white people took it from them it's always in the exter- external that someone is doing something to us um, and that's why i talk about like the victim mindset victim mentality the everything about victimhood is the external right 
And when you start to look at the internal, what you have control over, what you can do, then you're no longer a victim, right? So even if this person is doing something negative, well, you still have the power to do something about your life, even in that circumstance where that person is doing something negative. And I think that it's it's a switch in view that I think we need more of, um, the victim mindset versus victor mindset. It, I agree, but it's tough. I, you know, even with with the disability stuff, everything else, it's so easy to fall into the the grievances, the thinking okay. of grievances. Oh, what was me? All this stuff happened to me. You know, uh, and look, often people are right. Like often those grievances are very real. Problem is, just living and wallowing in them isn't going to fix anything. It's not going to make your life any better. You're not going to be any happier or well off. It's it's like. You know, you can't let it swallow you up. But for so many people, that's what happens. And we live in a culture at the moment that encourages it, that praises it, that think that's a good thing. That's wonderful. You're a victim. <laughs> that's great. It, but it's like, but it, you know, this is this is just this is just my problem with people. So often, it's like they meet, you know they meet someone who is suffering and they just want to talk about, oh, how wonderful. Look, you're you're going through this terrible thing, and then that's just it. And it's like, is this actually a caring society? Well, congrats. You recognize they did this. You know, you recognize the person's drowning over there. Did you do anything to save them? No. Okay, then <laughs> shut up. <laughs> yeah. That, and actually, that, and you made a good point because I was actually about to say that. It's the enablers. The enablers are, are allowing for this to flourish. So, like, I remember, by the way, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? 34. Yeah. Growing, 34. Okay. growing a little closer to death every day. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm 39, so you might remember this. So you remember Austin Powers in Fat Bastard, the character? Yes, Austin Powers okay. 2, I think, yeah. Yeah, I believe it's the same, yeah. So I remember, and this I think this is the first time when I saw like people actually like caring. I remember when there were fat people who were upset because Fat Bastard was a character, and they were saying the very things that like, of fat positivity and stuff like that. But this was like the early incarnation. And I thought to myself, like, one, it's a fictional character. Two, it's mm -hmm. a comedy. Like, they make fun of all types of people. Um, you know, when when they make fun of Swedish, you don't say, you don't see the Swedes getting pissed off and saying boycott the movie. Like, so th there was something that, um, there was something about that. I just remember thinking like, that's weird that people are actually like taking this seriously. Um, and I remember just like the change in language, uh, what you're, what you're not allowed to say, what you shouldn't say, well, it could be considered, in, you know, insensitive and people just slowly kind of giving way on it. Um, and now we're at full bore. Um, if you don't date a fat person, you're fat phobic. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just like, it's completely ridiculous, but it's, it's that, it's that repetition of just like, uh, chiseling away at our good nature um, and having the most sensitive person win each and every time. And sometimes if you give into the most sensitive person, well, everybody becomes sensitive and everyone becomes weaker. Whereas maybe we should strengthen the resolve of the sensitive person. Yeah. It's like, you know, there's so many of the forbidden topics like uh, the issue with, um, 
men invading women's sports. We just had this golfer, right? And they say he, he's begun the transition. He's be, he, pair, he came <laughs> to the golf he came to the golf tournament. He's wearing pink. Okay, that's how he, that's that apparently that's all you need to do now. And uh, it's obvious this is this person is uh, the ninety nine percent ninety nine point nine percent of his, this person's lifetime he was a guy and he mm-hmm. has all the benefits and now he's showing up this this golf tournament for women and it just so happens in such a way that it might benefit him you know he he just he just just creams everyone just breaks through breaks huge records it, it's it's like you, like one you're not allowed to notice it right because they notice it apparently. <laughs> For a lot of people, that's enough. That will make you a bad person if you just observe it. Yeah. But, but it's too, it's like, I know a lot of people who are trans. I have friends that are trans. They're actually very cool people. They are nothing like this. And it's like the people that supposedly that we're being sensitive for to help, they don't. They aren't actually being helped. I know this with um, disability activism. You know, the, the I, in so many ways, one of the sad things that we have, I think I've seen over the last, you know, 10 years, I have been, you know, I have, I'm only 34, so I haven't been doing this decades without disability reporting. But it is the sense you get that there the problems people have in the disability community are are stacking up, and it feels like there's so much there's so much voice and talk about it, but very little work is actually being to be had. And I I'm just taking a guess here, and I think that's true of a lot of other issues. And I <laughs> I would I would bet it's true for for the LGBT stuff. I would even bet it's true for Black Americans. Because it, it just feels like like everyone wants to get a pat on the back for being the hero, but no one wants to lift a finger. But I'm, maybe I'm just being a pessimist. Maybe I'm just too pessimistic because I'm a misanthrope and a hermit. <laughs> well, I don't think you're wrong. I think a lot of people like like getting credit for doing nothing. Um, it it kind of reminds me of people who call themselves activists but never leave their house. It's just like, how are you an activist? Well, on yep. Twitter, I say this is bad. Th- that's it. That's like that's a really low bar, <laughs> you know. Um, and and it, I think a lot of people like the easy street um, when it comes to doing stuff, but it's like that in politics too. You know, they just think that well, if we just elect this person, they'll fix everything. It's like it takes ten minutes to go and vote. So you think. Just doing that will put somebody in there and they'll just fix everything. I don't care what party it is. They're not going to fix everything. That's ridiculous. And they're not going to fix your problems either. Um, so, like, maybe you should do the hard work and fix your problems. And I'll say this uh, for, on a personal note. Um, a lot of the things that I was able to overcome took a long time and it took a repetition it took failing it took realizing like i'm messing up on this it took trying again it 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 takes it's a really long arduous process but it's necessary to go through if you actually want to improve your life and i see people who are very nihilistic that that process will lead to them actually changing their life and you were talking about like the 4chan and those type of guys nihilism is like that's like their blood it just runs yeah, through it's their pervasive veins. and they're like why bother what, what does it matter society's dying everything's bad and it was just like that person is is never going to be happy because there will always be problems there are, like there would never be a time where humans don't have problems 
right? And once you understand that premise, then it's about, all right, well, can we have less problems? Sure, we can have less problems or we can have different problems, right? So the problems of today are different than the problems of a hundred years ago. And some of the things that we would call a problem today, maybe a hundred years ago, they'd be like, I'd love that problem. Like, I don't know. It, it's just too, too much food. Too much food is exactly that. <laughs> yes. Too much food. Exactly. Um, famine or gluttony. I don't know which one's better. Um, so it's just, <laughs> but I think that, you know, there will always be problems. And just because there's an, a problem exists. And this is why like places like Twitter or even I'm, I'm, I've never really been on 4chan, but I'm, you know, familiar with it uh, to a degree. There are just endless cycles of like reinforcing everything is wrong. Um, and you can choose who to follow. And then that person profits off of you believing that everything is wrong. And the amount of good stuff that you see happening, especially like if you follow like cultural and political stuff, is like 1%. <laughs> uh, like it's just everything is crumbling, especially on the political right. Everything is falling apart. Everything is crumbling. This No, this is an excellent transition. Thank you for making it. You know, a big reason I, I start, wanted to start doing this show, Culturescape, is because like I... I love culture. I love nerd culture. I love learning about how it came to be, you know, all these amazing writers, all these people who worked on this, you know, how it took time to build these institutions, to develop these ideas. It's like, it's so easy to complain and anyone can do it. You don't need any knowledge whatsoever. And it's like culture actually is amazing and it's worth cherishing and promoting. And we're just not going to get anywhere if we're just complaining all the time. Right. Um, that and I see it so often and you, you know, this is the other kind of, thing that I want to talk with you um, today in this interview was, you know, working in uh, media, news media. And it feels especially for the right. They, they, it used to be it was more to the left, but now both sides are doing it. They, they are stuck in this complaint mode. And there's very little cherishing of culture, of what they have. And it, it, it is a travesty. But then again, I look at the numbers, you know, I, you know, this is no offense to the people at, uh, I'm just using them as an example. A lot of people do this. So like the people at TimCast, it's like if a story comes out, you can almost guarantee every time what angle they're going to take. It's going to be <laughs> it's gonna be slightly ridiculous. It's going to be very negative. It's like, are they right sometimes? Yeah. But is it very constructive? Not really. But I, but that could be an economics thing. Like the, the economics right now for, for making money in news is so tight. So I don't know. What are your feelings about the state of, of news media? Where are we headed? Because it is kind of a very rocky time to try to work in news. Well, I guess it depends which sector of news. So if you're talking about mainstream or if you're talking about independent, I think they're on two different trajectories. Um, they intersect in some ways. So we'll, we'll go into both. So like on the mainstream part, I think a lot of people are being turned off by mainstream news. Um, I think they're being turned off by uh, how corporate it's become, how predictable it is, um, and how elitist it is as well. Um, and and they're, I think my biggest issue, I got two big issues actually. My two big issues with mainstream media is that one, it is very much so elitist. Um, it is very much so ivory tower, um, these are people who are in DC and New York and live in their bubble and have no idea what it's like for rest for the rest of the population. 
right? These are the people who say fly over state, right? Th these are these type of people. They're the coastal elites. They're the ones who are in charge. They're the ones who are the figureheads of these media institutions. And they have a lot of money and they have a lot of corporate backing, uh, especially from big pharma. So like that's one of my biggest issues. The second issue I have is that yes, they are partisan, but they pretend that they're not. And, and personally, if you're partisan, just say that you are like, no one is under any, like any, uh, misunderstanding that daily wire is a conservative outlet. We get it. It's a conservative outlet. So you understand when you're going to this conservative outlet, they're giving you a conservative perspective. But when you turn on CNN, we're straight news. What are you? Is that really true? <laughs> you know, and it's that kind, it's that dishonesty. And it's one thing if you have a lean, it's another thing if you fall over, right? And they're, they completely fallen over into one particular side, one particular uh, perspective. Um, MSNBC pretends to do the same thing. And it's, and, and they're even more overt and how the lean you, you already know if you get somebody from this side that comes onto their show, they're either going to treat them like with, with kid gloves and they're wonderful, or they're going to cut them off and, and go at them and go at them, go at them. It is very overt. It's very obvious. And a lot of people don't like it. Now, when it comes to independent media, I see promise, but I also see some of the same mistakes, um, that they're making that, uh, that following the footsteps of the mainstream media. So for example, going after sensational content because it does get clicks, right? And that's the same stuff. Like there's a reason why, um, like CNN would have an article that says white supremacy, black police, right? Because they use yeah. keywords and they, they're catching all the keywords and they're trying to get as many clicks. There's a reason why they have ridiculous headlines because it pisses people off or the people love it. Right. And it makes them want to click on it. I'm seeing some of the same issues when it comes to independent media sites, going towards sensational content, going towards only trans stuff. Right. You know, just like it's that kind of thing when, when we have the opportunity to do, to do the thing that, um, that is the opposite of what we hate. And instead we're doing the thing that we hate because that's the only way that we feel that we can sustain ourselves. Um, and, and I don't think that is necessarily true. I think it is, I personally think it's a shortcut. Um, and just like most shortcuts, it doesn't last long. I think that good quality stuff takes time and it takes effort and it takes resiliency. It's much like, for example, it's much, it's much easier to sell drugs and make a few thousand dollars real fast. Right. But the consequence is you go to jail, you can die. You, you have all these big issues. Yeah. It's much harder to get an education, work your way up the ladder and then come out in the long run way ahead if you had ever sold drugs. And I, I see a lot of people selling drugs in media, <laughs> you know, they're just trying to get the quick hit. Uh, oh, story. They just want to report on it right away. They don't fact check stuff. They just like, uh, they just put stuff out there. And I, I think that is 
the state of our media. I, I, I agree with most of that, especially the stuff on independent media. I, I, I have the same, the same worries about where it, it, the problem is, the problem is so much is like, you're right. It's like, it's just the way that everything is structured now. If you want to be profitable. <laughs> and so news is basically all news and then conservative news, especially kind of leaving the way, but all of news is doing this at some, it, they're all going this direction, whether they're doing it fast or slow, they're all heading towards this direction where news and being an influencer is basically the same thing. Yeah. And so all news people now have to be like um, little celebrities and everyone has to play the influencer game. The problem is the dynamics of being a responsible and moral news person and being a popular influencer are different. Right. Are they huge differences? <laughs> no. But just like if you are flying or you're sailing a boat, little differences over a long time do make a big difference. But but they don't they don't have it. You know, this has been a pro this has been a long problem for conservative media even before independent media started going strong. It's hard to make these these arguments because they feel like they're constantly under attack. But I'm I'm with you because I'm like, is this actually being being helpful? It's and are we actually persuade are people in independent media? I I'm I'm an independent journalist, so I guess maybe I concern myself. But it's like, are we persuading new people to this? Are we persuading more people? Or are we pushing people away by just double downing with the audience we already have? And uh, there's not really a good, there's not really a good uh, conversation around this. And look, it's hard. I get it. Every week, no one wants to say, well, Emily, we're going to have to let you go because we want to be a little less uh, clickable. Like no one can make that art. No one could literally, no one could say that like in a business meeting. Like, how could you? You sound like a terrible person. But in a weird way, to be responsible news, that is kind of what you have to do sometimes. But uh, no one wants to say that. And I will, you know, before I flip back over to you, what you said about mainstream media, I think largely, I think largely that is true. I think there are aspects of media that that are survived from professional journalism that are useful. And they, they aren't the people at like the top of CNN or New York Times or Washington Post. No, they're, they're, they're the reporters who are just keeping their, their heads down and just doing the day to day. And those are the people I feel I feel really bad for. Um, and, but, but that that system over there is a wreck. Also, it's just for for slightly different reasons. As you can tell today, I'm I'm very pessimistic. Uh, <laughs> not a lot, not a lot of hope on the horizon in Peter's world, apparently. <laughs> well, and and to to add to what you were talking about, the the journalists who do the groundwork, the issue is that they have editors. And see, the editors are the ones. Who not only tell you that Trump went to uh, China to visit the president and and sign some deal, but they also want to let you know that uh, he's involved in a scandal and accusations of impropriety, and 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 he's been divorced, all in that same article, right? Make sure you put that in there too, right? So what's happening is even the factual stuff, like when, where, how, and why. Um, is getting interrupted with a little bit of narrative. Uh, let's just add that two cents into there, right? Even though it's true, right? Even even though those things are true, well, some of them are true to a degree. So, some of them, yeah, some. Yeah, some of them. When they were like accused of impropriety, accused by who? It's like when, um, I remember Fox News used to say, some people say, <laughs> it was like, who's some people? Uh, you know, it's that kind of vague, you know, statement, um, you know, it's when that kind of stuff happens, that's when it's like, can you, can you trust 
can you trust the source? And a lot of it has to do with the editors. So you were asking me before, like behind the scenes, you know, getting into, um, I don't know if you want to go more into that route. Like no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I think the business of journalism is, is fascinating, and I think it plays so much a bigger role in what you see in the media than most people seem to realize. Happy journalists yes. put out less garbage, in my experience. Um, and, <laughs> and that's why, by the way, I think laying all these all these companies going under, I don't think at least the short term is going to lead to better news. But that's just that's just my uh, my prediction. So yeah, no shoot, I'd love to hear it, Adam. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you as well. Um, one thing I'll, I'll, I'll try to focus on is that a lot of news, I don't know if you've noticed this, but a, not, a lot of news is reporting on someone else in the news and what they said. And so the, what the news person said is now the news of the day. It was like, wait, so news is reporting on news to make that news. Like it's, it's weird. Um, and there's a lot of that. So, so let, let's say for example, and, and here's the thing, that's kind of like what you have to do. So, uh, Tiffany justice with monster Liberty was just on Joanne Reed's show. I'm going to be working on an article talking about that appearance, but that's actually, that's a media appearance, right? And Joanne Reed is supposed to be a journalist supposedly. And so at one point in time, yeah, at one yeah, point in time, it's, it's a very weird, shaky area. And, and I'm going to, and me, I'm giving my opinion on what we saw there from a, you know, in, and so I'm, I'm actually doing the very thing that I'm kind of complaining about, but it, I think it just happens a little bit too much. Not necessarily that we shouldn't do it. I think we should call out members of the media who act in a, in a particular way. And I think that that interview was disgusting. Um, it doesn't to me it doesn't even matter if you agreed with Tiffany Justice or not. I think allowing someone to come onto your show that yes, okay, you don't agree with them, but uh, when you ask them a question, allow them to speak in in you know in completion and then you move forward. The problem is that television doesn't allow for that. There's so there's such time constraints with television. I can't tell you like when you do a TV appearance, they're like, you have three minutes. <laughs> oh, dude, I, I know exactly. I did, I was on the, the uh, Armstrong show last year, and yeah. it was like, I was like, oh, you know, we're going to cover this and this and this. It was like this really long chart. It's like, okay, I was really excited because I was like, okay, they're going to let me talk. And I get on there, and I swear it was a 90 seconds, and like the first 45 minutes, my equipment didn't work. So it's like, and now we have Peter Fiskow. I'm like, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Thank you, Peter. So no, I... I know exactly. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's crazy. It, 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 the 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 margins are so tight in TV. It's just nuts. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. Um, but uh, and and another thing that is interesting about getting into media is, uh, I'll speak from my perspective. It's really cool to get into media, to be a voice for for people who aren't given a voice. And and so a lot of people, in my opinion, a lot of people who, who are in media want to just talk about themselves, want to just show how great they are. Um, look, I have the best points, you know, they, there's a, you know, that kind of ego about it. And this is bipartisan. And 
while you know some some guy who's a working class Joe is reading might read it and say like I agree with them, he doesn't connect with them, right? And I think that there are people who over talk and and over intellectualize and and they don't speak in a way to actually make people understand what they're saying. They're not actually communicating with people. They're talking at people. And so I think my objective was always to have good vocabulary, not overly ridiculous vocabulary, understandable, clear points, because I want the audience to understand what I am saying and to speak up for what is wrong um, and speak up for regular people. Uh, and I think that like kind of like the voice of the working class, because like, that's, that's really what I am. Um, and I, I, it's one of the reasons why I started writing. Cause I felt like nobody was saying how I felt and how I feel is how a lot of people feel. Um, you know, and, and how come I'm not being represented? Well, it's because a lot of the media is filled up with college graduates who went to Ivy league schools or top ranked schools, and they've all been, uh, indoctrinated to become this particular way, or let's say they weren't indoctrinated to become leftists. They've all been taught to think that they are smarter than everybody else to write in a very particular way that shows off their writing talent. And I didn't go to college. I don't have any formal writing training yet. I'm able to do their job and I'm able to do it effectively and people like it. And it's because I'm not trying to do any of those things. You know, I respect the audience. I respect that people can understand what a, like a little bit of a complex thing is. I, I've had editors, and there's no shot on my editors, but I've had editors in the past say like, um, I don't think we should have that term in because people aren't going to understand. And I'm thinking to myself, of course they'll understand this. <laughs> you know, but they, like even sometimes they don't think that their audience can understand. Like you put two words together, like, they might mean something, you know, you know what one word means, put the second word, you know what that means, put them together. Oh, okay. I understand what you're saying. That's not yeah. that difficult, but they don't, they don't think that their audience can understand that. So they, they remove those things. It's, it's like, it's weird. It's sometimes it's kind of weird, but, um, I think for me, I'm just really appreciative of, of the different opportunities I've been given, um, to, to write for different publications, to not be censored. Um, I write what I want to write and like, especially like the New York post, for example, I know the type of stuff that they like and I'm, I'm cool with it and I write it and they might, they might ask me to write something, but I will only write it if I agree with whatever point they're saying. And we're on the same page. We have a really good, um, relationship, uh, with my editor, Kelly Torrance at the New York Post, uh, who, by the way, has become a friend. She was just over uh, at my place. We filmed for Breaking Bread, my t my um, video series. Um, they'll come out in a couple weeks. But like, you know, we have a really good relationship. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't don't realize is um, the the amount of relationship building that you have to have with editors. And, and uh, you build a mutual respect and sometimes you don't gel with an editor. Um, and you're like, I don't know what to send this person because they're hard to please. 
And then sometimes you do. And I've been very fortunate that um, Kelly gels with me. Every time she makes an edit, I'm just like, I'm good with it because she knows my voice and she really doesn't edit much of my stuff. If she, if she edits, it's kind of like a, it's a necessary edit. Um, and she made it better. So that's, that's those type of relationships are really beneficial. Uh, you were speaking about when you're, when you're writing a new, you're writing about a news topic, writing in such a way that you understand, but maybe the people who are editing don't. I've had, you know, I've had that experience before when I, especially with like, I'm covering the crop pain stuff. Um, and it's that really cool experience. I'm sure you've had it where you're like, you were like the editor, your editors and people at the the news company, they're not really sure if this will, will do anything. And then you get back, you get back and it like gets a ton of comments. It gets some real numbers. That's always real. That's like, that's super exciting. I, yeah. I really, that, cause it's like, it like tells you like, no, actually you were right. You, you, you had your, you, your finger on the pulse of uh the culture and what people are worried about you know i had that experience last year when i begot the fourth yes the fourth most popular usa today column of 2020 <laughs> i'm like that uh, i'm like that meme of that really excited guy that got third place at the olympics hey so listen i'm very proud of that it's i i would be too man like shoot as somebody who who never really got any sort of accomplishments when he was a kid, <laughs> I wasn't good at baseball. You know, when you got your name in the paper one time, you're like, my name got in the paper. It they could have it could have just been a crappy game, and you were one of the few kids that got a hit. But it was just yep. like my name got in the paper. I am I'm going to take that as a as a W. And so, quite literally, every time I write a, an article for the New York Post, I go and get a paper. And, and we have a collage um, or like a scrapbook of all the articles that I've written because I don't want, I don't want to take it for granted. Like, I don't know when my last article will be for the New York Post and I never thought I would ever write for them. So, you know, I have actually uh, framed on my wall is the very first art article that I wrote for the New York Post because uh, I had no idea if I'd ever write for them again. So it was just kind of like, this is awesome. And I still, to this day, I've, I've been writing for them almost every week, just about every week, um, for the past year and a half. And I, I go, I get, I buy a paper every single time. And because I think this goes back to humility and this goes back to gratitude and being thankful for the things that you're, you, you have. And like I said, from the very beginning, I had no expectations of any other stuff. I'd be doing any of this stuff. And I think it's really important to, for me to not have any sort of ego about myself. So like, uh, you know, I, I was, there was a live stream, a friend of mine. And, uh, I said, I sent a super chat through, they were like, Adam Comey, he's like a celebrity. And I was like, but I, I don't, I just see myself as Adam, you know? It, and it's, it's sometimes weird. Um, but I just, I'm always going to see myself as, as Adam and I will always be accessible, you know? And I think that's important to have. Yeah, you seem like me. I mean, I do I get a little a little jazz sometimes when you get a little bit of attention. Yeah, right. but mostly what makes me happy is if I work on a project and then you know, you can tell that people got a lot of use out of it. That makes me happy to know, you know, I do this show and I get comments from people saying, Thank you for doing this. You know, I really like this and this. And like knowing that, you know, you write a column, you work an article, you do a podcast and that it it, it helped other people. That's what makes me happy. That's why yeah. that's why I keep doing this because it, it it's like I'm providing value 
to others. And that's what makes it totally worthwhile to me. And I think that's true for a lot of people. They're interested in communications and journalism. And it's, it's why even if, even as this thing seems to be falling over its side and flailing all over the place, <laughs> there are always going to be some people who are still willing to do it, even if they make no money doing it at all, just because it provides good value. Uh, hopefully we, we keep more of those people, not less, but we'll just have to see. Yeah. And, and, and actually one thing I'll say is that's why with wrong speak, um, you know, I am, I'm having wrong speak work the way that it is working. And a lot of people are first time journalists. Um, like quite literally there's, uh, uh, Alfred is one of our journalists. Alfred doesn't have any journalism background, but he's like, but I really want to do this. I was like, okay, let's give it a shot. And our editor is an experienced journalist and, you know, there's a little bit of handholding and, and guidance, but like, I think that's important just giving people a chance. And if they're really passionate about it, like they, they're not really that interested about the money. And I think there, there's a lot to that. Um, so I've, <clears throat> I've been utilizing wrong speak as an avenue for, for regular people who want an opportunity to be heard, whether it's an opinion. Um, and I have journalists who want a, a, a chance to create a resume for themselves, to do some actual research in journalism, um, and to, and to give them an opportunity and a platform to be, to be seen, um, and search after stories that actually interest them. Right. And, and because it'll, if it interests them, they'll do a really good job and it might interest other people as well, because the passion will come through. I think that's, that's really important. And that's why I fund it. Um, you know, wrong, wrong speak. Uh, we don't right as of right now, at least we don't have any advertisers. We have no sponsors. Um, and so pretty much all of it comes from my labor and I'm okay with that. So. I think it's very important to to pay it forward because I was given opportunities and I think it's really important to allow other people to get, give opportunities. And uh, I try to foster that, that environment of humility amongst everybody and being accessible and being a mentor for people uh, because I was, I was just in their shoes not that long ago. Uh, awesome. So I think we're going to wrap it wrap it up here. This was a pretty good conversation. Adam, I think if more people had that attitude about news, I, I think we would be in a better position. Yeah. Uh, you're right. Humil humility is important. Appreciating what you do is important. I think a big problem people have had with the mainstream media is they seem to take their audience for granted. granted. Yes. And no one wants to feel that way. Like, you know, you don't want to feel like, oh, they just expect I'm always going to be here. Like, no, no one likes it. No one likes it. Yeah. Um, so we're going to tie it up here. Um, Adam, where can people follow you? You have your, your awesome podcasts, your, uh, your columns. Uh, where would you you'd like people to check you out on social media? Uh, any articles in particular, perhaps, you want them to read? Uh, I write a lot of stuff. So I'll say my, my Substack is kind of my hub for everything. So I'm putting uh, links to my commentary, uh, links to articles to different publications like uh, Human Events, the New York Post, especially, um, and Epic Times. And I try to inform my Substack audience as to the different publications that I've written for and, uh, and to have them check it out. Uh, I have the Breaking Bread series where we have sit down conversations, like actual conversations in good faith uh, while having a meal. Um, 
and it's very laid back and relaxed and unscripted. You know, I don't plan for any of it. Um, and I'm, I'm putting a lot of effort into the, the quality of the imagery and everything as well. So um, all that stuff people can, can find on my Substack, adambcoleman.substack.com. Yeah, it, it won't be hard to find Adam at all. He's doing pretty well. I'm excited to see where his, his career continues from here. I listened to uh, your interview with uh, David Marcus, yes. uh, who's uh, another writer for the New York Post. Uh, excellent guy. I really enjoyed that conversation. So check him out. Breaking, uh, sorry, Breaking Bread podcast. Um, all his work on the Substack and more. Um, and rolling up here, guys, this show isn't possible without the support of people like you. Thank you to our supporters. Thank you to Bain Books Publishing uh, for their guide helping put together the show. Thank you to Young Voices, a journalism advocacy organization, also for helping putting things together. My editor, uh, Chris Holowicki, he is awesome. He makes me look way more competent than I actually am. Uh, it's him and all the rest of you. Thank you so much. Until next time, my friends, keep geeking out. Oh,